You are listening to the Campus Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Dinah Jansen. Each Wednesday at 5 p.m. on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, I welcome a new guest from Queen's University to discuss news, issues, upcoming events, initiatives, and services for the benefit of Queen's students, faculty, staff, and alumni. Thanks for tuning in to this podcast, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Campus Beat. I'm your host, Dinah Jansen. I am in studio with Christo Avalis, a Shirk postdoc, postdoctoral fellow at the University of Toronto in the history department. But Christo is also a, uh, is a PhD graduate uh, from Queen's University, PhD 15, I believe. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And uh, he has recently published a wonderful new scholarly book called The Constant Liberal, Pierre Trudeau, Organized Labor and the Canadian Social Democratic Left with UBC Press. Christo, thank you so much for coming to the studio and giving us your time today. Thanks for having me. We really do appreciate it. Now, uh, this is a pretty exciting book. And, uh, and of course, you've got a book launch coming up at Novel Idea, September 11th. Yeah. Um, tell us about the thrust of this new book, The Constant Liberal. Uh, what's it about? What arguments are you making? And uh, what kinds of... What kinds of content would somebody expect to find in a book like this? Well, you know, the, the there's been a lot written on Trudeau. There's been a lot written on a lot of major Canadian political figures, but Trudeau is maybe right up there amongst maybe the top two, two or three kind of prime ministers in terms of coverage. Um, so when I approached this project, I tried to look at the broad field, and, and, and I kind of saw a gap because, you know, you have a, a kind of a minority position which is that Trudeau is, or, or Trudeau was a kind of secretive communist. Mm-hmm. Um, and they evidenced that by his trips to China and his trips to the Soviet Union and his you know, supposed uh, kind of support of the Castro regime um, in Cuba. And um, that's kind of uh, a minority position. But the mainstream position, both in terms of scholarly works, but also journalistic works, is that kind of Trudeau was a socialist in his uh, young adult days, uh, and then kind of became a pragmatic progressive who built this, who built the Canada we all love today. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you know, there's got to be more to it than that. And, and my approach is to argue that Trudeau, kind of from those youth, uh, those uh, young adult days, uh, you know, from the mid 40s onwards, was certainly a a, a small L liberal, mm-hmm. and that that kind of drove his politics throughout his both his pre-political career and also during his time as prime minister and even during the years, you know, post-politics and his retirement. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of my general approach, which is to examine, well, you know, why does Trudeau as a kind of small L liberal and, you know, big L liberal to define like, you know, a member of the liberal party, but small L liberal to define someone as, you know, something, somebody of a liberal ideology juxtaposed to, you know, the left, uh, be it, uh, you know, social democratic, democratic, socialist, however you or communistic, or whatever, however you want to define it, um, and and look at that kind of that tension. You know, why does Trudeau support the liberal or the the CCF uh, in the 1940s and 50s, and into the early 60s in some cases? And why is he so kind of involved with organized labor? And my argument is that those were the only two forces. Uh, especially in Quebec, but even throughout much of English Canada, that were actually fighting for things like civil liberties, and and Trudeau had this real sense that Quebec was a backwards province trapped in a uh, religious uh, kind of xenophobic mentality, some of which is true, but I think some of which is, is overblown. 
um, and that these were the only people, and not the Liberal Party, not the Liberal Party probably until 1960, does Trudeau see them as even uh, neutral. He sees them actually as kind of against the, the forces of change that need to happen. And he looks to, you know, uh, really three main groups. He looks to workers, he looks to uh, the Democratic Socialists, and he looks to, um, like, you know, certain parts of the intelligentsia, largely like progressive journalists, mm-hmm. uh, some of whom are, are, you know, are his close friends, like Gérald Pelletier, who would become one of his cabinet ministers, René Lévesque, who would, who would you know, become a rival, but at mm-hmm. the time was, was seen as an ally in, in the kind of general, you know, progressive, moving Quebec in a progressive direction. And whereas as prime minister, what I look at as I look at Trudeau now seeing kind of labor in the left as one of his key enemies. And because Trudeau has this real sense that um, Canadian people, especially regular people, working class people, um, their expectations are too high. They've, they've learned, they've, they've gotten a taste for the good life that the kind of post-war provided, at least to, you know, in, in a way never before, of course, people were left behind. And the book covers a bit of like the crisis of poverty that still existed in the 60s and 70s, but unquestionably standards of living at rose. And from a lot of working class people, um, there was a sense that um, it didn't have to stop. Um, but from Trudeau, his goal to preserve profitability margins for businesses, to stop this push towards equality that was becoming uh, more and more dangerous, he needed to kind of convince the populace, both through legislation, and I cover the wage and price control program and things of that sort, mm-hmm. um, uh, but also through like his, his political oratory to kind of convince people that what really needs to happen in Canada is wages need to fall, precarity needs to rise, we need to become more competitive with not only the United States, which was kind of having its backlash against their kind of post, post-war compromise a little bit earlier than Canada in some cases, um, but also, you know, the developing, the developing world, both, you know, the, you know, the Asian tigers like Japan and, and mm-hmm. Korea, but also, you know, just the, the increasing propensity to outsource work in certain sectors like textiles and stuff that, that was uh, really picking up steam in the 60s and 70s. So that was kind of the, the general sense. So my argument is that Trudeau, more than the kind of creator of this progressive modern Canada, which in certain senses he is, I mean, um, you know, in terms of, you know, the, the promotion of certain social freedoms. Uh, my book doesn't really cover those too much because those have been covered in other places. But mm-hmm. my argument is that because Trudeau, um, you know, he, he had really helped to found the kind of more unequal Canada in, a, in a, an economic sense, in a class-based sense. So one of the arguments I make is with the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, you know, it really does, based on Trudeau's understanding of it, um, really kind of emphasize certain social freedoms of marginalized groups like women and indigenous peoples and francophones, all of whom won major victories early on under the charter. Yet it wasn't until labor rights were recently read into the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And that was perhaps by design because it was explicitly excluded hmm. the mentions of the right to strike and bargain collectively, which were not included. And in early charter cases, were not found to be recognized charter rights. Mm-hmm. So my argument was that, you know, under Trudeau's leadership, and not all of it can be associated with him, but, you know, uh, in, in our parliamentary system, the prime minister of a majority government has immense power. So it's certainly he has, um, you know, a large role in this. As I say, Trudeau made Canada a more equal country within social classes, but more unequal between them. Uh-huh. And that was a design... I think uh, of of kind of his liberal understanding that that we had had too much equality, too much social spending, 
too much uh, redistribution and not enough wealth generation. And so in many ways, Trudeau, and this will shock some people some ways, sounds like a Fox News, uh, you know, TV host sometimes. He's, he's railing on the government as Santa Claus. He's talking about how we ha- wages have to fall. Workers are lazy. They're entitled. They're, they're weak. They're soft. Candidates get lean and mean and hard to fight you know, the world. But of course, this is all coming at the fact that, you know, when greed, when manifested from Trudeau's class of, you know, was, was still the kind of epitomization of, you know, the Gordon Gecko greed is good. But but when workers, you know, maybe bargained for a wage increase that, that looked high, maybe in some cases, workers were getting 30, 40% a year increases. Those were simply trying to keep up with inflation. And, and, and that was used as the impetus to kind of attack the greed of organized labor in a way that never really approached the, the kind of attack on greed on, 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 on corporate capital. Okay. And, and so that's kind of the, the approach there, which I think offers a distinct challenge to much of the work on Trudeau. These issues weren't unexplored, but most of the, the biographical, like book length projects on Trudeau, again, either approach from the right, which is to say that the, you know, the, all of the, what I'm talking about is evidence of him actually being a communist mm-hmm. and, and he was like a secretive socialist type. Or the kind of more broad view that Trudeau created the Canada we all know and love today. And, and you know, the, the kind of nostalgia for like the 60s and 70s of this golden era, uh, Trudeau was the man that made that happen. Okay. Yeah. So we can see uh, where you're position, positioning yourself amongst the, um, amidst the scholarly literature. What overall, uh, what contributions overall do you think uh, your work uh, makes for understanding the Canadian political landscape uh, then and now, let alone Canadian history more generally. Yeah, no, I, I think I think in a lot of ways one of the the goals of this project, obviously, it's a it's a biography focused on, on Trudeau, but it's uh, what I like to call, what other people have called, a kind of social biography. At least that was the aim, which is to say that it's you know not so much a biography about Trudeau and his personal life and written in a kind of uh, almost a kind of pr- like you know like. Uh, like you might write a nonfiction book, it's 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 aimed at this kind of deliberative process to talk about Trudeau being a man of his time, mm-hmm. and Trudeau is a man of immense power and and, and 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 you know notable intellect and having all of these these means, whether financial or just you know through his his ability to write and and speak effectively, but also through his you know the offices he held and the power that brings to influence society. But yet Trudeau is 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 in many ways just as influenced by the events and individuals and currents floating around him, mm-hmm. not just when he's, you know, obviously, you know, growing up and when he's, you know, uh, absorbing all of these things as a young man, but even during his time in power, like what is he reading? What are his advisors telling him? What are the kind of broader trends, not just in Canada, but say in the United States and in Europe? And how is he responding to these things? Certainly to some degree, some of his attacks on labor are driven by the fact that, um, you know, if you hold the general kind of understanding of, of capitalist economics, um, he was concerned, I think legitimately so in some cases, about Canada becoming uncompetitive if, unless he did kind of attack the working class of Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also, I think, believed in that and used those international trends as a pretext to achieve the goals he wanted to achieve. So it's a mixture of compulsion because Canada was a G7 country, a very important country, but its economy was dwarfed by the United States and Britain and France and, mm-hmm. and then soon to be dwarfed by emerging powers like China and India. Um, and so he was kind of stuck in the middle as this middle power where he has great influence, but is also still dragged by the tides of, 
of geopolitics and of history, right? Yeah. And, you know, things like oil prices, for instance, that's something that Canada really couldn't control given that, you know, the rise of OPEC and, mm-hmm. and it's just, you know, these realities, right? Um, so that was one of my goals to really kind of look uh, how a lot of biographies kind of have the, the person acting upon history mm-hmm. and maybe people responding to that. But this, I have both of those things, but I've tried to kind of demonstrate how history acts upon him. Okay. Um, and in terms of the broader questions, I think one of my goal really was to look at the interplay of liberalism and socialism, largely liberalism as defined as the Liberal Party in Canada and socialism as defined by the CCF NDP mm-hmm. and, and, the, and segments of the labor movement that were politically oriented. Uh, you know, not, not all unions, of course. Most of the unions I cover are either public sector unions or, or industrial unions. There's not so much inclusion of, you know, uh, welders and carpenters. Um, mostly, you know, steelworkers, QP, you know, yes. P- PSAC, uh, things of that sort. Um, and how they kind of interplayed during the post-war era, how the, you know, the post-war compromise was in a sense formed um, and how it kind of uh, disintegrated in a sense and, and, and how uh, Trudeau was, uh, like a lot of other figures, this, he drawn to the, the CCF for, for liberal reasons, for small L reasons, for the fact that the party, even though it was, you know, dedicated... Uh, to varying degrees, but even during Trudeau's time, to essentially a post-capitalist future, um, it, it was also the party of civil liberty. It was mm-hmm. also the party of individual rights. It was the party of women's equality before any other party. It was the only party that spoke against the internment of the Japanese. And for all the imperfections of the CCF on on race uh, and, and you know colonialism and stuff, there's been good work done on, you know, for example, the Douglas government's real checkered history with dealing with the indigenous people and Métis people of Saskatchewan. Uh, the reality is the party was always kind of consistently better on those issues than the main, their main rivals and the conservatives and liberals. And so they kind of draw these sympathetic social progressives in a sense to them. Yet the, the economic divide was too fundamental mm-hmm. uh, to kind of square. And they had fundamentally different visions for society. You know, what is democracy? Well, Trudeau would largely argue for most of the time There'd be some flourishes of a social democratic take that democracy was, you know, voting and participation in the system, whereas the CCF, the labor movement, the NDP, and up until probably the end of Trudeau's era, at least, would argue that there, well, there is no democracy without public ownership of, of key industry and without worker participation mm-hmm. uh, within industry, either through, you know, systemic unionization. Ed Broadbent would have kind of a, a amused policy, if you will, um, that... Um, Every workplace should be unionized by default and workers would have to opt out of unionization at that given, you know, workplace. Mm-hmm. Or David Lewis, for instance, talking about equality of condition being his goal, which is to say effectively equality of opportunity isn't enough. Okay. Uh, it, it, we must approach a society uh, of, of, of near total equality. Uh, not in a totalitarian sense, but in a kind of sense that you can't have equality of opportunity without equality of condition. So he would muse about, for instance, you know, capping salaries. If you if you do the inflation calculator at $180,000 a year, and no one needs more than that. There can be inequality, but the inequality shouldn't manifest itself in, in its perversion of democracy and its perversion of equality of opportunity for the next generation. So you know, the kind of general sense. So these are fundamental disagreements. So mm-hmm. the narrative is often that Trudeau, uh, you know, was a CCFer who went to the Liberal Party uh, for kind of, for some key, some reasons like the position on Quebec nationalism, which I think was a legitimate difference. 
um, but that gets overplayed. And, and then also because he was pragmatic. He said, well, the CCF NDP has no chance, especially in Quebec. I'm going to go where I can form power, and I'm going to become a liberal. But I'm still actually the same guy who held those values. Whereas, yes, he is the same guy, but his values kind of haven't changed. And rather, he sees the fundamental disagreements about the future of Canadian capitalism. Mm-hmm. And, and Trudeau is not really that different than, than what you'd see from the progressive conservatives or even modern conservatives today. The difference is how best to preserve capitalism. So Trudeau's objective was you preserve it through reform, um, occasionally right-wing reform, attacking unions and stuff, but also through certain elements of uh, social and economic planning mm-hmm. because um, Trudeau had a constant fear in the 50s that uh, both in Canada but especially abroad – that if the isn't international peasantry isn't given something, they'll take everything. So it's like you reform or you get the guillotine, right? You know what well, I mean? That's a French yeah. revolutionary. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> he was concerned yeah. about that. Whereas, you know, conservative, a more libertarian type would say, well, no, you preserve capitalism by letting it fully unfettered. Mm-hmm. And that's how you do it. But their goals are essentially the same, to build a kind of pro- a society centered on the individualistic kind of conception of private property. Whereas the CCF, at least at the time, at least during Trudeau's era and before it, really was, I think, and this is somewhat controversial because the general narrative is that, well, the CCF after World War II became a reformist party, and they were reformist, but to reform capitalism out of existence. And I think that was the understanding. And whether or not one thinks that's possible or, or the way to socialism, that, that was their kind of belief. Mm-hmm. So it's really to look at the distinctions between between these two movements in Canada. A lot of people see as the same, especially in our modern context where, you know, the narrative is often, well, why can't the Liberals and the NDP just merge to stop the Tories? Mm. We heard that during the, the, the recent provincial election. election. <laughs> yeah. But in this provincial election, it's very key to note that while, you know, Kathleen Wynne's Liberals started that election on the kind of premise that, you know, we're like the NDP, but more responsible. We're going to run on some of the NDP policies. The NDP announced dental care. We also have dental care. They announced pharmacare. We've also announced pharmacare. When the election was lost for them, it was very important to note that they stopped really attacking Doug Ford and they started attacking Andrew Horwath and their number one political platform became the scaremongering of unions. Mm. And I think at the core, the Liberal Party will run what it needs to do to win but when its core ideolo- ideology is threatened, it will align with people like Doug Ford because they hate Doug Ford less than they hate Andrea Horwath. And I think that's the reality, right? And so Trudeau... And, and, has, and that's yeah. sprung from a legacy from Pierre Trudeau. Well, it's not. Well, this pre- that predates Trudeau in many ways, but okay. Trudeau is part of that legacy. So it's true in many ways that Trudeau found more cooperative... Uh, opportunities with the CC with the NDP. Um, he cooperated with them on um, uh, during the seventy two to seventy four minority government, where the NDP held the balance of power, and so the NDP kind of demanded, um, for example, the Petro Canada be formed, mm-hmm. uh, which would become a crown corporation. It's now been privatized, of mm-hmm. course, um, and the formation of the Foreign Investment Review Agency, which basically existed to not block but screen f- uh, large foreign investments coming into Canada. Uh, with the hope that they would, um, if if the investment would have to prove its value to Canadians, uh, to Canadian businesses, Canadian workers, the Canadian economy generally, um, and so on. Uh, they found cooperation at times on 
you know, the the Mincom experiment, which is the basic income experiment they did in Manitoba, mm-hmm. uh, which was the, at the time the Manitoba government was was an NDP government. And of course, the Trudeau liberals were federal. So they kind of had a, a joint project where the, it was administered by the province in some ways, but it was funded by f- the federal government. Um, so there's cooperative opportunities. But I think at the end of the day, Trudeau's vision is really part of this broad kind of liberal conservative consensus that's governed Canada since 1867. And that continues to govern Canada. Okay. And I think that's important. People kind of get that sense. And that's a broader part of the project. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And now from the project that you've just published, uh, The Constant Liberal, Pierre Trudeau, Organized Labor and the Canadian Social Democratic Left. Uh, this was also, if I'm understanding correctly, based on your doctoral research here at Queen's. Um, how is it? Ex- um, how is this book extended from or evolved from your dissertation? Yeah, no, this has been a long-term project I've worked on. I mean, I, I started with an interest in generally in Trudeau and kind of the left uh, in my undergraduate, actually. I did my undergraduate degree at uh, the University of New Brunswick in Fredericton. Um, and there I, I, I did my bachelor's thesis uh, in political science, actually, uh, on on this broad topic, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a, a fifty-page kind of thing where I covered the whole the whole fifty years, um, and then what I was able to do is I, I came to Queens uh, in two thousand two thousand nine to work with uh, Ian Mackay, mm-hmm. who's now at McMaster, uh, on the same topic, but for a master's thesis, kind of more focused on the first ten years. And what I did with that was I took that. Uh, and with a lot of work, of course, turned that into a, 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 a journal article. Mm-hmm. And then I continued that research through the PhD to cover the entire period, which is basically 1945 uh, until Trudeau's passing. But mostly the main period of, is 45 to 84, 84 being when Trudeau kind of retires and the last decade and a half being more of a kind of epilogue. Mm-hmm. And so in, in terms of the development of the project from thesis to book, I mean, I was fairly fortunate that not a lot of structural work was needed. Um, my supervisor and I kind of had a sense that this was going to be a this was going to be a, a book worthy project. So what we did was we we really wrote it as a book. So the introductory chapter isn't methodological. There's no literature review in it. Effectively, there's a bit. Um, <laughs> it was written as an introduction to a book yes. and the literature secondary. And this was in the dissertation. It was all strewn throughout the relevant chapters and paragraphs. So I do the historiography when I need to, there's no methodology chapter. There's not, none of that yes. kind of thing. And, it, and you know, the introduction and conclusion were, were written as the summations of a, a narrative in a sense. Um, in terms of the work needed to be done, uh, a lot of it's the standard work that every graduate thesis needs to be need or uh, PhD thesis needs before it becomes a book. Um, and UBC Press, if you go to their website, and this might apply mostly to the social sciences and humanities, probably a history above all, because it's, again, it's kind of more of a narrative base, but probably applies to the, many of the, the other uh, disciplines, which is that uh, every kind of dissertation has many of the things that you need to kind of fix. The introduction and conclusion did need to kind of be written from the, rewritten from the ground up mm-hmm. to be more... Um, Less, uh, I'm doing this and then that and then this and then that because that's kind of boring mm-hmm. and every dissertation does it. Mm-hmm. So it's like do something different. Um, general cutback in words. Uh, history dissertations are generally a little bit longer. Uh, <laughs> so the press accommodates that. But I did have to cut about 10 to 15% of the word count. Oof. But um, but without having to actually cut any sections. More it was reading through it. Cutting excessive footnotes, that's another thing. They want you to get rid of your explanatory footnotes. Mm-hmm. So if it's not worthy of being in the main text, it's probably not worthy of being in an explanatory footnote. So you cut that or move it into the text. 
uh, you know, when you say C, X, Y, and Z works, you don't need seven examples. You might only need two or three. Yep. All of that, you know, you cut your block quotes. You don't cut them all, but you, you pare back your block quotes because mm-hmm. those break up the reading for non-academic readers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so I had a lot of those, a lot of like long quotes by Trudeau kind of, you know, so a lot of administra- almost administrative work to really pare copy down. Copy editing. Copy or editing. Yeah. So that was a lot of, a lot of it. And uh, other stuff, it was, you know, general, you know, this, this part is, it, you need to expand on it here. This, this doesn't work with this particular section. And that's the kind of big stuff you have to do to get it peer review ready. Yes. And then it goes to peer review, right? Mm-hmm. And then it, you know, unlike um, a journal peer review, uh, it's not it's not double blind. It's 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 only single blind in a sense. And also, you have much more of an input. So, for instance, at least with UBC Press, they ask you to provide a list of you know a dozen or so scholars who you feel would be suitable to review your book and then why you think they're suitable. And then they try to se- select from that list. And I believe both people they selected from mine because I found out who edited because they were the. The, the you know the 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 blurb quotes for the book mm-hmm. um both of those people were on my uh list of of suggested readers so the press accommodated that and then after that it's just you know you have to make the changes so in this particular case um you know uh two readers liked the book one was uh liked it but just i think disagreed with the general premise uh so you have to write a letter of response to the press mm-hmm. to get the um to rationalize what you'll change and what you won't change. And, and why they, you yeah, won't change. Exactly. Yeah. And you could say at some point, look, this is asking me to change my argument or this is really a whole nother direction and that's a great direction and, and maybe maybe that person could write it or maybe I could write it at another point. Mm-hmm. But that's not what this is about. So I'm going to decline that. But for the most part, the changes were, 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 were well recommended. Mm-hmm. And this process takes months, right? Because yes. UBC Press worked lightning quick for academic press. Uh, the book from... Uh, from start to finish took about three years, mm-hmm. which, which is quite fast. And they were very good at giving me an advanced contract. That's another thing. If getting an advanced contract is helpful because it gives confidence to job applications, to postdoctoral applications, that you're not just musing about publishing this book. You've got some kind of deadline, some kind of you know uh, uh, expectation, both on your end and on the press's end, that this is something they're worthy of publishing. Mm-hmm. One final thing for a lot of Canadian publishing is that once it's past peer review and you've done all of that, it's great, but it still needs to be ultimately funded in most cases by um, the Association for Scholarly, uh, ASPP, I forget the, what it actually stands for, but it's run through the same body that runs the Congress uh, for social sciences and humanities, okay, and you have to get funding for that because most academic presses uh, books lose money, so presses are, are are wary of 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 publishing books like that. So if you get the funding for that, it kind of covers the basic publishing cost for your book, okay, and then that's the kind of final step. And then after that, it's you know it's marketing and it's all of that. So the process is fairly standard, but for dissertations, there's something you always have to go through. But your mileage may vary. There are some dissertations that are great dissertations, yet in their comments they'll be told. You know, you'll have to do substantive changes here to to move this forward. Um, you may be a project that says goes from 1930 to 1950. The uh, peer, the the your thesis committee might say, well, the project is unfinished. You really need to take it 10 years further. Mm-hmm. That's what it's going to need for the book. Luckily, again, with mine, the the basic core narrative, many sections stayed more or less the same, minus um, the introduction and conclusion, and minus just general. Paring okay. down, so I was, I think, fortunate, but um, but that's the general academic uh, publishing process. But I would recommend people check the UBC website; they have general recommendations, and there are books 
out there. You can probably get them at Stoffer, which you know are like thesis to book transitions. Okay. Um, and because uh, they're 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 good tools. Sounds and, like yeah. solid advice yeah. for junior scholars yeah. uh, who are coming out of their PhD or maybe uh, um, teaching somewhere or um, embarking on some research at the at the postdoctoral level too to mm-hmm. how to get motivated in publishing those uh, findings into books. Now um, we do have a couple of minutes left, about three minutes left or so. So um, while we've heard so much about the work you have done, uh, can you tell us just a little bit about what your current research as a Shirk postdoc at U of T is all about? Yeah, in, in broad terms, I have a kind of broad project that I've proposed about a specific thing that I'm working on. The broad goal was to kind of do an exploration of the Great Depression kind of as a crisis of capitalism. Uh, you know, in a kind of almost in a, in a Gramscian sense, this idea that, you know, there are times in history when, um, you know, the ruling class who in most countries rule not through direct force, but through kind of, you know, uh, this the illusion of consensus. And that's very much the case in Canada, loses the confidence of the people they rule because of crises, whether it's economic or social or religious or intellectual. Uh, and they lose those those those. Um, those those that confidence and it creates this opportunity for new discourse so i look at the great depression as a crisis of of capitalism as a crisis of religion to a certain degree and look at those broad scopes but the project i'm specifically working on and it'll it's a book project for um athabasca university press who does a a series on of of working class biographies is on uh canadian labor leader a.r mosher who was a founder of the Brotherhood of Railway Employees and the All-Canadian Congress of Labor. He was essentially a kind of pioneer of the national labor movement in Canada as a juxtaposed to the international movement, which is largely centered in the United States, and one of the founders of industrial unionism in Canada, which is, I guess, distinct from the craft unions in that you try to organize all workers of a given workplace regardless of the specific task they do rather than you know splitting the butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers <laughs> into their various unions. It was a different philosophy, and he was also a, a player within the CCF. And you know, at first, a kind of loose, tolerant ally of communists, but... Um, eventually one of their enemies. So it's a long-term story about about a Canadian labor leader. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Christo Avalis, uh, for coming in and talking about The Constant Liberal, Pierre Trudeau, Organized Labor, and the Canadian Social Democratic Left, the new book that uh, you've just produced and uh, is being published or is published by UBC Press. And there is a book launch happening where and when? Uh, novel Ideal, you know, downtown Kingston uh, on September 11th at uh, 7 p.m. 7 p.m. So if you want to learn more about uh, Pierre Trudeau, the constant liberal, that's a great opportunity to do so. Uh, Thank you again, Christo, for coming in and giving us your time. We really do appreciate it. Thanks for having me.